If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the book of Luke and get used to hearing that. Because we're starting here a series on the book of Luke that could last anywhere from six months to six years. <laughs> uh, who knows, you know? Um, I just, I want us to, we are going, you are going to know the book of Luke so good uh, by the time we get done with this. Um, uh, this is the way I, this is my most natural way of preaching, is just to go through the, the text and take it verse by verse. Uh, there'll be times where we'll take a break, uh, go on a series, I'll use, as I'm going to do right now, in fact, a passage, a sort of a launching point to talk about uh, some other things, but uh, we'll be getting very familiar with the book of Luke, and so we encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, uh, and we're going to try to wean ourselves off a little bit from uh, the, the overheads. Uh, it's, there's something about the physical Bible being brought to church and we're reading it together. And it's a good thing. I, I will, during this series, uh, be using the TNIV, today's New International Version. Uh, and it's close to the NIV, but I think improves on it in some significant ways, making it more readable. It uses inclusive language, which I, I think is very important when the, the original uh, Greek intended uh, inclusivity and other things of that sort. So it's the TNIV that I'll be using. Um, but uh, you can use any version that you want. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We will be hovering over the, these passages for about three weeks or so, which gives you an idea of how fast we're going to be going. But I'm going to use this as a springboard to talk about, and here's the title of this series, Jesus for Thinking People. Jesus for Thinking People. Here's what Luke says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I want to pray and I'd like to ask for some people around the auditorium to keep this message covered in prayer. Uh, you know, you, as Melanie said in, in the screen there, a lot of people find that when they pray for the message, they get more out of the message. So there's actually something in it for you too. A couple more. All right, good. Yeah, just keep it covered in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, which is a lamp unto our feet. It is our guide, Lord. It's our constitution. And uh, it is useful for instruction and growth and discipline. Father, anoint this word. Uh, I know that my words will be just completely without any kingdom value unless you, Holy Spirit, are, are surrounding each and every one of them that come out of my mouth. So Lord, infuse this message with your authority. Open up our minds, open up our hearts. And in particular, Lord, I pray for any who might be here who aren't right now in a saving relationship with you. Lord, use this word to compel them, to persuade them, and to draw them into a saving relationship. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's take care of some of the factual stuff about this book, and then we'll get into the beginning of this series. It's always good to place, in fact, it's necessary to place uh, uh, any book that you're reading in the Bible in its original historical context. So here's what we know about this book. The author... Traditional title is, is Luke. It's ascribed to Luke. But we can't be 100% certain that it was Luke. Um, 
Luke doesn't name himself in this work. Now, that was pretty customary for people in the ancient world not to uh, sign their works or name themselves in their works, especially religious works. It was considered arrogant. So there's nothing unusual about the fact that the author doesn't tell us who he is. We do know just from this passage that, number one, he was not himself an eyewitness, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He wasn't one of the original disciples. He says he's carefully investigated all the things that have been handed down to him from the eyewitnesses, from those who were eyewitnesses, which tell us that he himself doesn't claim to have been one of the original disciples. But it's also clear that he's in touch with, with the eyewitnesses. He's part of this uh, uh, early Christian community uh, when the eyewitnesses are still alive. There is, however, I think, very good reasons to accept the traditional authorship of this book as being Luke. The chief argument is that everybody in the second century who, uh, who mentions this book cites Luke as its author. All the early secondary sources uh, uh, accept that Luke uh, is the author, and no one ever disputes that. And these are people who are, in our, who, are, who are in a much better position to know than we are, and they have a lot more at stake since the church is being persecuted at this time. So there's good reasons to think that, in fact, it was Luke. Luke is mentioned as a companion of Paul three different times in Paul's letters. He was a physician. He was a doctor, and he kind of uh, followed Paul around at times. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. In fact, Luke-Acts is written as a two-volume single work. What's interesting about the book of Acts is that you'll find at three different places there's uh, sustained passages where the author goes into the first person plural. He starts talking about what we did. Normally, the author would talk about uh, what Paul did or what the disciples did, but it, there's three passages where he says, then we set out for such and such a place. We got on the boat. And what that tells us is that in those passages in the book of Acts, Luke, who is kind of following around Paul at points, here he's talking from his own experience. Other times he just reports what he's heard, but other times he talks from his own experience. So uh, there's good reason to believe that this person was a person who was a companion of Paul and who authored uh, this gospel that we're now going to be studying. The dating of this gospel, the second background point has to do with dating. Uh, we can't be sure when this book was written, and there's a lot of disp disputation about that. However, it's very clear that it couldn't be written too late, uh, too far after the original Jesus, uh, the historical Jesus lived, because he, he says in the passage that we read that he's talking about the things that have been fulfilled among us, among us. It's also clear that he's still in touch with the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses are still alive. So uh, that, that fits best with him being a first-generation Christian. He wasn't part of the original disciples, but he was a very early uh, Christian convert. Even more compelling than that, I think, is that this author also wrote the book of Acts. And if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends very abruptly around 62 AD with Paul being in prison. He's under house arrest. And the book just stops. It boom, I don't know if you ever noticed that. It just pop, it's done. And he asked the question, why did the author end there? Now here's what's really interesting. Is that a few years later, starting around 64, a number of things happened that it seems to me that if Luke had, been, had not written this book yet, they would have been included in this book. 
For example, uh, Luke is very interested in martyrdom, but he doesn't mention the martyrdom of, of Paul, which happened around 64 or 65. Luke is very interested in Jewish-Roman relationships. It's found all the, throughout the book of Acts. And in 66, uh, there was a Jewish-Roman war that broke out. He doesn't mention that. Uh, Luke is very interested in Jerusalem, all the activities surrounds Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention the fall of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. Uh, he's very interested in the persecution of Christians, and a major persecution broke out in 64 under Nero, but Luke doesn't mention it. And I don't know how to explain that except under the uh, assumption that Luke wrote before those things take place, which tells me that Luke is writing sometimes be sometime before 62. Uh, which puts him three decades after uh, the original Jesus lived, less than three decades. He's a colleague of Paul, and he's part of the uh, first-generation Christian church. The audience that Luke is writing to, third point is audience. The audience is one he calls Theophilus. Now, ancient authors often wrote to specific individuals, but they didn't mean this to be a private letter to the individual. It was a way of dedicating their work to an individual. So he's writing for Theophilus. Theophilus is clearly an educated person. You can tell that by Luke's style. He gives a very formal introduction that was common with agricultural, medical, and historical literature in the ancient world. And so Theophilus is clearly an educated uh, individual. But Luke doesn't mean this work just to be for Theophilus. In fact, some scholars argue that Theophilus was a literary device. He wasn't an actual person at all because the name means uh, a friend of God. And so one could take this book to be written to all educated friend of God or friends of God or written to help educate friends of God, recent converts, people who have, who have become friends of God. But most scholars think that Theophilus was an actual person, probably a Gentile, probably an upper-class educated uh, person since he could read. Luke's writing, the fact that Luke's writing to him shows that he could read, which was uh, more of an upper-class thing in the ancient world uh, than, than anything else. And uh, uh, he was either a recent convert or someone who was considering being a convert. So there is the background information. Now, the first question you got to ask about this passage, and this is what's going to be the foundation for our series the next three weeks, is simply this. Is this true? Is Luke telling us the truth, that he was in touch with eyewitnesses, that he carefully investigated everything? And is Luke's report about Jesus accurate? Can we, can we rely on this? Why think that this is true? Luke wrote this book, we, we read earlier. He says, he says to Theophilus, so that, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants to convince his readers that this stuff is true, so it makes sense for us at the start to ask the question, is this true? Can a modern, thoughtful somewhat critical, intelligent person today accept this report that Luke's giving us? Which is to say, can a thoughtful, intelligent person today accept that Jesus Christ is Lord? Accept that their report is actually reliable? That's why I'm, I'm entitling this Jesus for Thinking Christians. And today, next week, and on Easter, we'll deal with this topic. And then, by the way, two days after that, on a, on a Tuesday night, March 29th, we're going to have another one of our Q&A sessions. I like to uh, call this a seeker's, uh, a seeker's session. And what, what we're really just doing here is, is asking people to come with all their questions about the Christian faith, all their objections about the Christian faith, and Paul, Eddie, and I will have a dialogue with whoever shows up there on an audience like this. I've done this in a lot of other churches, and it's a blast. So uh, mark that on your calendar, Tuesday night, March 29th, and bring uh, your, your friends and relatives 
and stuff uh, who maybe are not believers, but they have questions about it. I'm hoping that we have some of those here right now. There's three reasons why I think we need to ask this question first. Is this true? Number one, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this to help people who are seeking, who are interested in Christianity, to help them uh, think this through and, and to give, show them why uh, thinking people should believe in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I'm doing this to help solidify the faith of believers. Uh, you can be a disciple of Christ, but it can happen that you have subtle doubts in your mind. You know, you believe it's true, you hope it's true, but you're not convinced it's true. I, I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where um, uh, all of a sudden I, I'm reading a book or an experience happens or something where all of a sudden it occurs to me, this stuff is really true. Uh, wow, I, I really believe this stuff. No, I always believe this stuff, but there are times when the coin drops in the slot and it's like, man, this really happened. This isn't just religion. This is, this is real. We're dealing with a real God, a real Savior. Uh, you know, and this is real history. And I, I want the coin to drop in the slot because the heart has trouble getting passionately, passionately behind a mind that's not convinced. So this is good for believers to solidify our faith. And the third reason is because the Bible says that believers are supposed to be prepared. It says this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that, that you have. We are commanded to always be prepared to give an explanation for why we have this hope in Jesus Christ. And if ever we needed to obey that command, it, it's today. Uh, we can no longer, Christians can no longer expect that even the most elementary aspects of the biblical narrative, that, that their neighbors or their co-workers or even relatives know about that stuff. Um, and people have questions. Why, the question, why should I believe that? That's not a sign that a person's pagan or, or sinful or carnal or rebellious. It's just a sign that they're thoughtful. And we need to be able to, to give an answer to that. Because there are reasons, I believe, why a person should believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, a lot of people say things like, well, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. Faith doesn't need any reasons. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. You know, I just believe and receive. And the people mean well. In fact, in some circles, and it's too pervasive, but, but the idea that you need reasons is seen as being evidence that you don't really believe, that you lack faith, that uh, you're, you're, oh, you're trying to be intellectual or something, uh, you know, kind of intellectually sn snobbery. You just have to have faith. But see, here's the thing. You tell someone that they just have to have faith, that doesn't answer anything. Uh, what should I have faith in? You know, the Mormons say you just have to have faith, and the Muslims say you just have to have faith, and the Unification Church with Sun Young Moon says you just got to have faith, and, uh, you know, everybody says you just got to have faith. Uh, that, that cult that they, where they killed themselves a couple years ago to jump on that comet, remember when they all wore those kind of tennis shoes? I'm sure that guy said you just got to have faith. See, if, if you just have faith because someone told you this was true, then what are the odds that you believe the right thing? It's kind of a roll of the dice as to uh, what you end up believing. And uh, God doesn't ever expect us to shoot out our brains when he asks us to believe. In fact, the Bible says, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together. We're never expected to base our life on irrational stuff. We don't live like that normally. You know, a couple uh, years ago, I went parachuting with my daughter, uh, which maybe seems like a pretty irrational thing to do, but we were, we were just kind of excited to try this out. So we went to this parachuting place. They gave us a parachuting course. There we are. Woohoo! Uh, 
Okay, now before I put on that parachute and put my life in the hands of this guy who uh, was going to be my tandem jumper, I asked a lot of questions. Because <laughs> um, I, I wanted to make sure that this was a reasonable thing to do. Faith always goes beyond the evidence, but it shouldn't go against the evidence. So I asked a lot of questions. And if this guy would have said, uh, hey, hey, listen, you just got to believe in me. Don't I look trustworthy? <laughs> I would have said, bye-bye, I'm out of here. Faith goes beyond the evidence, but it shouldn't go against the evidence. We always, when we're going to put our, 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 our life on the line, which is what Christianity is all about, it makes sense to ask the question, is this a reasonable thing to do? Faith goes beyond the evidence, but it should not go against the evidence. Whenever you get on a plane, you're, you're taking an act of faith. That's a, that's a step of faith. Because you, you don't know that the pilot's not drunk. You don't know that the mechanics have done their job. You don't know that there's not terrorists on board. You can't prove that. But it's pretty reasonable to assume that the people have done their job, and statistically, it's very safe. Safer than driving, I'm told. So, so we get on the plane, even though it takes a little bit of an act of faith. Faith goes beyond the evidence, but it shouldn't go against the evidence. There's good evidence that flying planes is safe. Now, if you're getting on a plane, if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, going to Connecticut in a couple weeks, and, and uh, as I'm getting on the plane, I notice this captain, the pilot, kind of staggering with, with his tequila, you know, a, 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 as he's getting to the plane. And then I notice some terrorist-looking people with machine guns on their back putting these little beeping things on the, on the, on the you know, uh, rudder of the plane or the tail of the plane and then I notice that the wing is kind of falling off because it's only being held on by one screw now it might be irrational for me to get on that plane now faith would be going against the evidence we all live by faith you know that everything we do involves an act of faith getting in your car getting on a plane getting married it all involves faith you're going beyond the evidence the question is not whether you'll believe or not the question is what will you believe who will you put your trust in if you believe that there is a God, as I do, then, then you're going beyond the evidence, you're, you're having faith. But I think it's a very rational thing to believe. It's hard to explain the world without it. But if you don't believe in God, you're still exercising faith. You're wagering your life, and if we're right, the next life, on the hope that it turns out that God doesn't exist. And if you're wrong, then there might be serious consequences for that. You, it, it, you're taking yours. If you believe in Jesus... That's an act of faith. But if you don't believe in Jesus, that's also an act of faith. Whatever you do, you're going strictly beyond the evidence. The question is, is are you going in line with the evidence? Are, are, is your step of faith a reasonable thing? And my own conviction, and I have uh, studied this and, and subjected my own belief to uh, you know, a lot of criticism over the last 25 years, but I still remain resolved in the conviction that this is the single most rational thing to believe. Uh, and, and that's the most, for me, that's its selling point. Yes, Jesus does a lot of great things for your life and blesses you and yada, yada, yada. That's great. But the, only, the, the reason I believe it's true is because I believe it's true. It, it's given me reasons to believe it's true. So let's dive into this question. Why think that this stuff is true? Let's do a little old-fashioned logic. It comes down to two things. Either you're going to uh, think that what Luke is saying is true or you think that what Luke is saying is false. And that could be applied to all the Gospels. Either they're telling us the truth or you think that they're telling us falsehoods. That really exhausts all the alternatives. If you come to the conclusion it's true, sell out. Uh, you know, surrender your life to Christ. Because if this is true, this is the most important truth that has ever existed, that ever could exist. Now, if you don't believe it's true, you have to believe it's false. That stands to reason. And if you believe it's false, you've got really two options. Either it's intentionally false or it's unintentionally false. 
There are no other alternatives. If it's intentionally false, that means these people intentionally made up a lie. And we can call that the conspiracy theory, and there are people who believe that. If it's unintentionally false, that, this means that they sincerely believed what they were preaching. They just were believing a lie. They didn't make the lie up, but they were believing a lie. And this is what uh, you could put under the category of the legendary theory. Uh, a bunch of legends developed around Jesus, and these people happened to believe them, and, and that's what got this off the ground. Those really exhaust your alternatives. It's either true or false. If it's false, it's either intentional or unintentional. So let's look at this. I want to, this morning, in the remaining 20 minutes, uh, deal with the conspiracy theory, and then next week we'll deal with the, the legendary theory. There are, the conspiracy theory would look like this. Uh, and it's not held by very many scholars, but it's, uh, there's been a lot of popular level books written about it. And you find, you know, people in, in the crowds believe in this sort of thing. But it goes something like this. For whatever reasons, the disciples got together and, and made up a religion, made up stories about Jesus. Uh, they, they said maybe Jesus made a good impression on them and, and when he died they just kind of wanted to honor him by starting a religion so they made up stories about him multiplying the loaves and the fishes and walking on water and healing the blind and raising the dead and then he himself died on the cross and rose from the dead and so that's kind of how the conspiracy theory would go and you can find examples in history of people doing this kind of thing mainly in politics that's where you find the real good political conspiracy theories uh, but once in a while, even in religion, people make up lies to further a cause. Could the early Christian's faith, could Luke, the faith of Luke, be explained as being this? I submit to you, it's the single most improbable thing you can imagine in history. There's five problems with the conspiracy theory. Ready? Ready? Number one, there's no evidence. The conspiracy theory is a historical theory, and historical theories stand or fall on the basis of evidence. So to say of any historical theory that there is no evidence is quite a slam, and there is no evidence. Uh, if the disciples got together and made up a lie and, and, and created Christianity as kind of a hoax or a conspiracy, um, we would expect there to be some evidence, but there's absolutely none. None. There's not one shred of evidence that this thing was made up. If, if we could prove, for example, that, that some of the disciples were duplicitous. In fact, they'd all have to be duplicitous, wouldn't they? Because this was a conspiracy. But that they were lying characters. They were deceptive. They were de de deceitful. If someone could give some evidence of that, well, then we might have something to talk about. But as a matter of fact, all the evidence indicates that, that the disciples, while quite carnal and while sometimes dull, um, there's no evidence that they, were, that they were duplicitous, that they were hypocrites, that they were liars. Uh, there's no evidence to support this conspiracy theory. And since theories stand or fall on the basis of evidence, this alone is one very good reason to reject the conspiracy theory. But there's a second problem. Not only is there no evidence, but there's no motive. In any court of law, if you're going to prove that someone committed a crime or something like that, that there's a cover-up, one of the most important things to establish is that there's a motive. Uh, why would the people do this? Now, see, if, 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 the, if, the, if, the God, if the early disciples, if they benefited in some way by preaching this gospel, 
well, then we, we could see why they might have a motive for making this thing up. If they became sort of TV evangelists and they were wearing the Rolex watches and wearing those nice suits that they wear and their hair is slicked back, you know, and they got their alligator shoes on and they're driving Mercedes Benzes and they're living in mansions and flying in Lear jets, you know, and, and they're just preaching and, and raking in a ton of dough, hallelujah, well, then maybe, maybe the thing, maybe, maybe the conspiracy theory would have a go. But that's not what history tells us happened to these guys. In fact, quite to the contrary. Not only did they have nothing to gain, but they had everything to lose. And they would know that going into this. Tacitus is this uh, Roman historian. He's writing around 115 A.D. He, is a, uh, he, he has seen emperors slaughter people all of his life. Killing is no big deal. But even he... And, and he hates Christians. He, he just thinks that they're the silliest people on the planet. But even he felt sorry in his writings. He felt sorry for the way Christians were treated under Nero. They were executed by the boatloads. Uh, they were, uh, you know, beheaded, stoned, uh, sometimes fed to lions. Worst of all, they were impaled on posts uh, and then tarred and lit on fire as torches for Nero's parties, uh, party torches. Now, that is just unthinkably gross. Why? Not only did they not gain anything, but they lost a great deal. Uh, And so that completely undermines the force of the conspiracy theory. We got to imagine these guys getting together saying, look, we really miss Jesus. Let's make up a religion about him. You know, uh, and let, let's say that he multiplied loaves and fishes and healed the sick and, 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 and cured the blind and, and, and then died on the cross and rose from the dead. Yeah, let's say that. And then somebody says, Matthew says, well, why would we want to do that? And the rest of them say, hey, because then we can get killed and impaled and tarred and feathered and lit, lit on fire. It's not a plausible hypothesis. There's no evidence and there's no motive But thirdly, there's no deserters. See, here's the thing. It it, it would be silly enough that they started a religion when they would know that there would be no gain in it for them. Um, But now when the persecution starts, and it starts right away, and they knew that this would happen, their fellow Jews start persecuting them, and then the Roman government starts persecuting them, and then Nero launches this big attack on them. Are we to believe that none of those people involved in the initial conspiracy the initial story recanted? Uh, that is, I think, uh, utterly implausible. You know, in early Mormonism, they, 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 have, they used to wager uh, the credibility of their story on three witnesses. Some of you know this, the three witnesses that saw, supposedly saw the angel Moroni give the golden tablets to Joseph Smith. And this was the proof that Mormonism was true. Now, that worked fine until a couple of years later when the Mormons migrated down to Missouri. They were practicing polygamy by this point, and the Missourians didn't like it. And they began to persecute the Mormons, uh, began to throw some of the there were riots that broke out. Some people got beaten up. There was a couple of people who were killed. It, it started to get pretty tough. At that point, two of the three witnesses recanted their testimony. I, I guess I'm not so sure I saw that angel there. And see, and, and that's what you expect. When the going gets tough, people save their own skin. That's human nature, you see. What's amazing is that we don't have one account of any of the early disciples recanting their, their, their story. Here's what Chuck Colson says. Chuck Colson, as most of you know, was involved in the Watergate scandal where they tried to cover up some of Nixon's activities. And... Um, 
Uh, then he, he paid a penalty for that, and then he became a Christian, and now he writes uh, some pretty cool stuff. This is from his, uh, his, his magazine, Breakpoint. He says this, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their President. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. He did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. And then he compares this to the early Christians. He says, now the fact is that all those around the president were facing, all, all that those around the president were facing was embarrassment and maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. And he could have added impalings and being burned alive. Every, every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Now see, if any of them had cracked, we have good reason to believe that we would have known about it. Because remember, Christianity was birthed as a sort of a segment, of, an offshoot of Judaism, and the official Jewish establishment hated it. Uh, they saw this as just a, 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 a rabid, dangerous cult. They wanted to squash it. If, if they could have had one apostle recant his testimony, uh, a, a, a James, the brother of Jesus, that would have looked good, or, or an Andrew, or a, or a Peter, uh, somebody who just said, okay, listen, uh, we, we, we made it up. Uh, he didn't really do that. We, we were just joking. Uh, boom, the, the show would have been over. They would have grabbed hold of that to squish this, what they perceived as being a cult. And yet the, the fact is we don't have any record of anyone recanting. And given the treatment they went through, to me that is rock-solid proof that whatever else you think about these guys, they sincerely believed what they were preaching. And they said that they saw Jesus do these miracles, that Jesus made divine claims, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and they were willing to die for it. That tells us something. So the conspiracy theory doesn't uh, work because there were, in fact, no deserters. Fourth is what I'll call the countercultural dimension of, of uh, the gospel. Here's the thing. If you're going to start a religion uh, and you want to sell Jesus to a Jewish audience, why? We still haven't figured that out. But these guys get around, they're going to say, okay, let's make up a story, let's, let's, let, let's concoct a religion. You're going to be thinking, how, what will sell this to our audience? Uh, how can we package this to make this credible to the audience? Whatever your motives are, we don't know, but, but you want, if, if, your motive, if you want to sell it, you, you tailor make it to the audience. What's amazing is that some of the most fundamental aspects of the Gospels go directly against the culture they're trying to sell their message to. For example, at the center of everything is Jesus Christ, and these folks are saying that Jesus made divine claims about himself, and they're saying that, uh, he, that in him God himself was present. He's the Son of God, which means that he's the representative of God on earth, and they worship him as God and encourage others to do so. He's Yahweh walking on earth. Now, you've got to know 
that there is nothing that you could possibly come up with which which would be more offensive to a first century Jew than what I just said. They, the, the core of their faith was, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There's one God up here, human beings are down here, and never confuse the two. They regarded the Roman practice of divinizing emperors as absolutely blasphemous. They wouldn't have anything to do, in, do with it. They wouldn't so much as, as tilt their head out of respect to, to the emperor's statue. Uh, lest it gets, uh, in some ways they're condoning the divinity, the supposed divinity of, of the emperor. They couldn't stand this. If you're making up a religion in the first century to sell to a first century Jewish monotheistic audience, the one thing on earth you do not want to say is that a human being was God. And yet here we have it in the Gospels. They go out preaching that this man is God and he calls on us to worship him and, and whatnot. They'd have no motive for putting that in their story unless they thoroughly were convinced it was in fact true. But there's other countercultural aspects as well. For example, Jesus dies on the cross. Now to us, we're used to crosses. We wear them on our necks all the time. But to the ancient Jews, the cross represented the most shameful, ignoble, demonic way to die. No one was expecting the Messiah to die in the first place, let alone die on the cross. So now we're to conceive of this conspiracy. These guys are getting around here. They got to huddle. They say, let's make up a story. Uh, yeah, Jesus did some miracles, healed the blind, uh, he died on the cross, rose from the dead. Hey, let's say he was God. That, yeah, that will really help sell this thing. And here's another idea. Let's say that he died on the cross. In fact, let's say he died a, a God-forsaken death. Someone says, yeah, this will really help sell the whole thing. Let's have him say while he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That will really prove his divinity, won't it? That will clarify everything. Thank you very much. See, that's the last thing you'd ever put into this story if you're making this story up. If these people were concocting this thing, then they were absolute idiots. Uh, this is the kind of thing that will get you killed in the first century, and it did. The only motive they would have for saying that Jesus was divine, that he died on the cross, that he said those words on the cross that he said, and many other things, is that in fact they believed it was true, and the only way to explain why they believed it was true is because in fact it was true. Finally, the fifth point is this. If they were lying their message could be e easily falsified. It could be easily disproven. And as I said earlier, there's a lot of people who wanted to disprove it. You realize that uh, th these guys aren't telling a story that was long, long ago and far, far away. This isn't a once upon a time thing they're saying. Once upon a time, there's a man named Jesus. He did many good deeds and miracles long, long ago. No. They're talking about a, a fellow Jew who they knew, who they presupposed their audience knows, who lived in Palestine, and that's where they're preaching this gospel, and he just died a little while ago. And so there are eyewitnesses around. You can't go around making up lies to a hostile audience when they can check out the facts. It's not hard to do. What, what makes this even more serious is this. They drop big names, like Pilate, the governor, like Caiaphas, the high priest, like Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court today. These are household names, you guys. These are important dignitaries. You can't go concoct a story and having these people play the central, uh, 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 central role unless what you're saying is true. Because there's a lot of other people out there who are going to be very motivated to check this stuff out. And if they go to Pilate or, or one of Pilate's uh, colleagues and says, is it true that this happened? And he goes, we don't know what you're talking about. This, this movement's done for. So with Joseph of Arimathea, so with Caiaphas, the high priest. It'd be kind of like this. 
if there's a guy on the east side of St. Paul who's, who started a religion where he says that he is God and that Jesus is the devil, and I start losing parishioners to, that, to, to, to this new religion held in some guy's house, and they're claiming that he is changing water into wine and doing miracles, and that he's meeting with the mayor of St. Paul and, and Norm Coleman, the senator, and they, they, they saw him do miracles. Guess what? I am going to go check this guy out because I, I, I have a role to play in protecting my sheep, and these people are falling to this demonic lie, and I'm going to expose him. I'm gonna, and I'll go to Norm Coleman, and I'll go to the mayor and, and others if I have to, to do it. This is how the Jews all saw the early Christian movement. And they had all the reason in the world to try to falsify it. And if, if these folks are making this story up, it would be so easy to falsify. But as a matter of fact, no one falsified it. No one disproved it because they couldn't disprove it. In fact, what's really interesting is that among all the charges ever made against the early Christians... One of them is not, you made this whole thing up. You can't find any ancient person who accuses the early Christians of making this up. Now, if they had made it up, we should find that accusation all over the place. But no one criticizes them for that. In fact, no one denies that Jesus did miracles. What we find in the Jewish record is that they say that he was a magician or, or he, he did it through the power of the devil. But they don't deny the basic claims of history. So it comes down to this. You're going to have faith whatever you believe. Uh, you're going to have to go beyond the evidence. But you don't have to go against the evidence. A faith is rational to the extent that it's based on the evidence. And so here's the question. Are you going to place your faith, wager your entire life and the next life, on the hope that the conspiracy theory is true? After everything that was just said. Or will you place your faith in the hope that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Luke is telling us the truth and the other gospel authors are telling us the truth. Will you put your hope in the truthfulness of the gospel? It's kind of like this. Here's, here's the situation. You're in a burning building. You're in a skyscraper that just got hit by some, some terrorist planes. The place is on fire. You're on one of the top floors. There's smoke everywhere. People are choking. You can't see more than two feet in front of you. There's people running helter-skelter. No one knows how to get out. Someone all of a sudden grabs your hand and looks at you nose to nose and says, listen, buddy, Here's the thing, I designed this building. I know a secret way out. I can take one person with me. I grabbed your hand, follow me. What are you gonna do? Now you can't prove that this guy isn't a wacko. You can't prove that he's not a suicidal maniac who wants to take you down with him. You can't prove that, so you're gonna have to go beyond the evidence. But you can't prove that he's not the architect either. Maybe he is. What are you gonna believe? What are you gonna believe? And the building's, you know, on fire, so you have to make your decision rather quickly. Now, if he, if he takes out some credentials and shows you, he says, okay, look at it. We only got a second here, but you're hesitating. Here, look at it. Here's my credentials. Here's a certificate. Here's a picture of me building the thing, all right? <laughs> it's possible he just made all that up. It's possible he forged it. It's possible he's in on the terrorist thing. It's possible, but how probable is it? How rational is it to believe that? Whatever you do, it's good. you're going to take an act of faith. You're going to either put your trust in this guy as he's going to grab your hand, you're going to find the secret way out and get saved, or you're going to trust that your odds are better running helter-skelter and maybe something will open up along the way. See, either way, do you see how you're having an act of faith? This is a situation we're in in life. This is very, if the gospel is true, our situation is like this. The earth, in a real sense, is on fire. What Luke tells us and what all the gospels account tells us is that Jesus came into this world to save us. So apparently we were lost. 
And apparently we're in trouble, we're in danger. Otherwise, God wouldn't have taken such an extreme measure to rescue us. If, if what Luke is saying is true, here's, here's what follows from it. Number one, as you're sitting here, you couldn't be more loved than you are this minute because your creator has a passionate love for you. Jesus died for you, and you've got to know that. But number two, if you're not in a relationship with him, you're in danger. The building's on fire. I don't know how long before it collapses, but it will collapse, which simply means you're going to die. You're going to die, and you don't know when. And that's not a scare tactic. That's just a reality thing. So the question is, what will you put your trust in? Jesus Christ in this smoke-filled room is reaching out and saying, will you grab my hand? Will you, I know a way out of here. In fact, I died to carve a way out of here. Will you grab my hand? Will you go into eternity with me? What are you going to trust? You got the conspiracy theory? Could be all made up. Yeah. But what is the more reasonable thing to believe? Close your eyes to pray. When all is said and done, it's not about an intellectual theory. You have to believe it's true, but God's not looking for people who believe certain truths. He wants people who love him, who are loved by him, who have a relationship with him. If you're here this morning, and you, whether you have done this before or not, right now you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you know it, and you're willing to surrender your life to him, would you just raise your hand, and I want to pray for you from up here. Raise your hand real high. And did you say, I see that hand, ma'am. A few others, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, This isn't about believing a theory. It's about surrendering your life over here. I'm going to pray for you. This isn't a magical thing. It's just a commitment you make to get a process started. Anybody else? There's all over the place. There's hands back there. You're doing it before God. Just say, God, I, I, I'm going to surrender way in the back. Over here, wonderful. Up here in the front, praise God, praise God, praise God. Over here on my left. Okay. Now I want us all to pray together. And you who raised your hand, pray this out loud from the depths of your heart. This is serious stuff. You're grabbing hold of a hand. This isn't magic. Don't walk out of here thinking that now you don't have to live for Jesus because you prayed a prayer. This is a step where you're, you're saying, I'm going to commit my life to you. It's the beginning of a process. So let's all pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I have faith that you are real. And I have faith that Jesus Christ is real. And I, right now, surrender my life over to him. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me all my sin. I ask you, Lord, to grab my hand and lead me out of danger. And I ask you, Lord, to come into my life and help me live for you every day of my life, starting right now. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and for saving me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Yes. Amen.